You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Monster Talk listeners may be aware that my production company, Monster House, also produces a show called In Research Of. In that show, I'm joined by archaeologist Dr. Jeb Card as we review episodes of the 1970s and 80s series that explored many topics of interest to Monster Talk listeners. Of course, I'm talking about In Search Of. Season four of In Search Of included an episode that looked into the mystery of the Shroud of Turin. Was the Shroud a miraculous relic that once wrapped the body of Jesus and was infused with a faint image of his body in repose? Or was it, as scientists and historians have suggested, a 14th century fraud that had been identified as such contemporaneous to its first known appearance in history? That episode included an appearance by a young investigator named Joe Nickel, and we now know him as the Venerable Dean of Scientific Paranormal Investigation, but his appearance there gave us a rare opportunity to talk to someone about In Search Of who had actually been on the show. What follows is a bonus episode from In Research Of that I'm cross-posting here because I think it'll be of interest to all our Monster House family. If you haven't checked out In Research Of, you can find it at Patreon, and you can also find links to the series in our show notes. Also, I'm quite far along with Joe's next book coming out, so stay tuned for announcements when his latest volume, The Science of Monsters, will be released into the book-reading world early in 2024, hopefully. All righty, without further ado, let's go hear about what it was like to be on the TV show In Search Of from investigator and author Dr. Joe Nickel. Monster Talk. Today we're interviewing Dr. Joe Nickel, who listeners just saw and are heard from in our coverage of Season 4 of In Search Of, Episode 7, 
in search of the Shroud of Turin. Joe is a researcher and a writer, and in the course of that work, he has familiarized himself with scores of skills and occupations, which he refers to on his website as personas. And you should do yourself a favor and check out joenickel.com with two L's, and you can see the many interesting entries from Joe's colorful life, as well as links to his books and writings. And today we're having Joe on for a special bonus episode because he is the first person that we've been able to track down from the original In Search Of series who is still focused on scientific investigation of such topics as The Shroud, who appeared in the original series as an expert and, crucially, is still alive and willing to talk to me. So welcome to In Research Of, Joe Nickel. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that... um... They described me at the time as a young skeptic. Yes. <laughs> I, I thought, uh, well, that's uh, all those years ago. But it was in uh, 1979, and uh, I guess that was as, as good a description of me as, as any. I think elsewhere in the piece they described me as a um, private investigator and artist. You see, I'm a. I used to tell Paul Kurtz I was a hack of all trades, <laughs> and he would laugh and then wag his finger at me and say, "No, you're a jack of all trades and master of many." So I had him fooled. But I, uh, <laughs> I've had a career in which I've tried to. I guess if you look back and and try to find out what my main efforts were, I've tried to take some of the world's great mysteries, whatever whatever they seem to be, and to see if I could solve them. And uh, the Shroud of Turin was certainly a challenge in that regard early on. I imagine so. Now... Before we dive into the Shroud research, uh, can we talk a little bit about the TV show In Search Of itself? Um, I think uh, by season four, I know I would have been familiar with the show, but I would only have been about uh, 10 years old at that time. Um, How did you become familiar with the show? Had you seen any of it before they invited you? You know, it's, it's hard for me to remember that far back. Sure. Over over what now seemed to me rather inconsequential things, you know, um, I was that was so long ago, and I was doing so many shows um, that uh, you know I I don't have a particular memory. It's not like uh, Leonard Nimoy walked out and he was all aglow or something. <laughs> I uh, I just. Uh, kind of remember some things about it. Uh, It was uh, a lesson to me when I uh, looked back and got a printout of the the actual text and everything to see how how very young I looked. But I I knew, of course, who uh, Leonard Nimoy was, but I, I don't remember having any particular knowledge about the show nor was I uh, even drawn to the show. That's that's pretty much not how it works. 
Um, the the question I think would be how how did they find obscure little old me? How did they find me? And I had uh, already been working on the question. You know, how was this? How was this image on the Shroud of Turin? which we ought to say at some point was supposed to be the Holy Shroud. This was supposed to be the shroud in which Jesus's body was wrapped. Uh, never mind that the uh, Gospels don't mention such a cloth being saved. No mention at all. And nor... Um, was it uh, this this shroud really compatible with the the uh, description in the gospel of john which describes you see multiple cloths a uh, separate cloth over the face and the verbs tying and binding now, that's not the shroud of turin the shroud of turin's a 14 foot piece of cloth that lay under the body presumably, and then fold it over the top of the head and then lay over the top of the body. Um, just a simple under and over draping. And, um, of course, that's, that's not according to Jewish burial practices or the Gospel of John. But it had this uh, rather uh, remarkable image on it. And that was that was the question I set to work on, was how, fake or not, in other words, uh, how did an artist produce this such that it was said of it at, at every opportunity everywhere, and, and, and this is no exception, in search of, pick that right up, that it's it appears to be like a photographic negative. You see? Yeah. And and the logic was well, if it's if it's only um you know, a few hundred years old, it's it's only known from the thirteen fifties. Uh and if skeptics want to say it's a fake, um let them let them answer this question. How could an artist, a mere a mere medieval artist, have produced a perfect photographic negative long before the invention of photography? And every time the shroud was shown uh, pretty much anywhere, that was that was the big question and so when I started work on that question um, or on the question of whether the shroud was genuine or not um, I had to deal with that what was really a question of sort of uh, darks and lights uh, how did they get that way on a, on a cloth you know, and I don't think they talked about it very much in the episode, but the fact that it did look better or more clear 
as a photographic negative, that that actually became part of the miracle. In other words, in, instead of it being a, uh, a merely a faded cloth, and it, obviously the inversion of that's going to look more, you know, clear. Uh, it became, it seems to me like they were implying that it was such a miracle that it sort of prefigured or presaged the coming of cameras. Like, that's how miraculous, you know, it just, it seemed that. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And there's a story to go with it. You know, the Shroud, the Shroud had this history and, and uh, we don't go into it that much on the documentary, but it, but they do a bit. And they mentioned that it uh, was, uh, you know, first showed in Leary, France, in the 1350s, and and then uh, it it uh, came to a church and nearly burned, but the fire barely touched the image. <laughs> you know, you can just read, oh, another miracle. It was it was somehow protected from the fire, and uh, how could this all be? And I know when I uh, when I first started, um, and I I was aware that skeptics like Paul Kurtz and and uh, others uh, knew almost nothing about the shroud because they they were just dismissing it. You see, as another old fake, another another bogus <laughs> relic. Uh, from the past and not credible. But the pro shroud people, you see, were very clever, and they were they were telling telling stories and wonders that uh, made you sort of sit up and take notice. And one of them was that when the shroud was first photographed by a photographer named Secundo Pia. In in uh, Italy, of course, uh, in uh, 1898, Apia tells very movingly how he was, uh, uh, you know, had struggled to get the biggest camera he could find and this this shroud and and get it sort of uh, working off a ladder or something and trying to photograph it and and that. He was, of course, using glass plate negatives. And he tells very movingly how he was so shocked when he first saw the the face of the shroud reversed on the glass plate negative. He was so shocked he almost dropped and broke the plate. He tells very movingly about that, and, and I think that's true. That's exactly what happened and it was very striking and there's a point in which that's that's something you know that I knew I would have to deal with this question of photo negativity yeah and Paul Kurtz had uh, um, talked maybe to the New York Times or someone so I I had uh, uh, didn't really know him at the time, but I I called him and told him that I thought skeptics, we skeptics, needed to be less dismissive and more um, knowledgeable. 
and and you know me well enough to know that that's been a kind of a hallmark of my approach low these 50 years was let's not just debunk or dismiss something let's try to know whereof well i i find it fascinating there there's so many lines of evidence that seem like any one of them would sort of falsify the shroud as a miraculous artifact, but it reminds me of what uh, the late James Randi used to call the unsinkable rubber duck. You know that it yes, it, exactly. It, it just keeps coming back, no matter no matter how many times you point out inconsistencies. It's like, yeah, but have you noticed how much it looks like our Savior? What? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm glad you mentioned Randi because, of course, he was a great influence on me. I owe him uh, many, many debts. But I uh, I had, had called uh, Paul Kurtz and, and told him that I thought, you know, we needed to be more informed and so forth, and that I proposed writing an article um, making some of the points that could, could be made, the skeptical points, uh, like that it was contrary to Jewish burial practices and so forth. And uh, he he agreed. That was, that was fine. And I said to him, though, I said, you know, I don't know how the image was made, but I'm working on it. Well, that was fine, and he published my first article in the Humanist magazine. And some time went on, a few months, I think, and I called him again. And I told him I could now make a a an image like that on the shroud, and that I I knew how to make it. I could make it and show it. And he said, "Well, if you're convinced, I'm convinced," because he knew I was sort of the guy, you see, who was. Uh, you know, uh, really a nobody, but I was a nobody with, you know, with some knowledge of this peculiar thing that was being advertised everywhere. I mean, it's hard to even remember when you go back to the time of the In Search Of documentary that that was the shroud was pretty much everywhere. It was it was uh, on shows and in magazines and and, uh, displayed uh, and so forth uh, just uh, over and over. Yeah, we talked a little bit. Apparently it was only pulled out of storage very rarely. And so this was around the time of one of those tours. Um, And I don't know, I I get where they opened it. It was in Turin and they, they, I guess hundreds of thousands of people came to see it in a very short amount of time. So it was probably, in, in addition to all the news crews and everything else, a hectic place to actually go to Turin then, too. Um, so did you get the uh, culture? I know it's been a while, but do you, did you did it have sort of the same vibe as, uh, I remember King Tut's uh, Treasures being on tour around the same time, and that being constantly advertised and showing up in news segments and that sort of thing. Was it sort of that kind of a... Uh, hype cycle? Well, somewhat, yeah. somewhat. Uh, that was, uh, you're right, that that was a big event. The Shroud was um, rarely brought out because it it really was, 
need an awful lot of handling and so forth. So when they did bring it out and displayed it, um, people could would have to come there and, and look at it. It wasn't on tour. Uh, it wasn't available to even go to Turin and see it. It was kept in its in its uh, reliquary casket and uh, not not exhibited. But of course, there began to be photographs everywhere and talk about it everywhere. And eventually, uh, after my second article, I, I forget the exact dates of that, but of course it was before this, this In Search of documentary, 1979. But interesting to me, when I was um, looking at this, uh, it was uh, original, originally aired in November 1979, and it strikes me as really more than a coincidence that the November 1979 issue of Popular Photography magazine has my images, and they gave me space. Again, Paul Kurtz knew someone there, and pretty soon my my experiments to make a quote-unquote photograph from the Middle Ages um, was being shown. And um, I was on every newsstand in America. And then, before too too long, um, with, with such things, you see, I was appearing now uh, kind of as the shroud guy, such that Carl Sagan came up to me in a conference and said, you wrote the book on the Shroud, right? And I thought, well, isn't that interesting that Carl Sagan would be introducing himself to me? How how far I've come. (laughs) How far I've come. And and I did have uh, my book, The Inquest on the Shroud of Turin, and Paul Kurtz had published that. And so it was furthering um furthering that uh, that aspect of me and my work. Now, it it's interesting you've mentioned Paul Kurt several times and I, I think people may not know your your biography, but we should probably mention that um you had been out of the country visiting uh Canada uh, uh fairly recent prior to this and Paul Kurt yes. Psychop only got created in 1976, so we're talking about 1979 here, and then uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos documentary would come out in 1980, and uh, he was already quite famous, but that really, I think, propelled him into sort of science science stardom. How did you meet Paul, and how did you get involved with Psychop? Well, I knew who Paul Kurtz was because... Paul Kurtz was organizing skeptics. Uh, he, he created a big conference and invited all these famous skeptics like Carl Sagan, you see. And Kurtz himself, being a humanist and being, you know, editor of the Humanist magazine, then later started his own magazine and had his own publishing house, you see. 
So, uh, as I mentioned, I introduced myself to Paul Kurtz by telephone. He never heard of me before, and telling him about the shroud, and that's that's oh wow exactly okay. okay that's exactly how how I just sort of called up and 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 he bought the idea. Okay, well we'll do an article on the shroud then if you'll write it. And then, oh, okay, the second time, you know how to make a shroud image. Good for you. We'll publish that. And then a couple more things. Uh, he he then got me, you see, in Popular Photography magazine. He knew someone there. And he knew that that I had something to show, for show and tell. I could make a fake shroud, you see. Yes. This, this photo negative business, which needed a lot of explaining and showing, I could I could take care of that better than anyone else, and so then he he called me. By then I was I was in uh, graduate school, and I remember him calling me one evening and saying, "If I gave you, if I gave you X amount of money." I think it was $1,000, which to a graduate student is like he might have said a million. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, would you write a book on the Shroud of Turin for me? Well, this this would be my first book, you see. And, and what better book could I do? There needed to be a skeptical book, didn't there, on the Shroud of Turin? And uh, so I I went ahead with it and uh, it was his idea for me to have a a panel of experts sort of behind me because you know without saying saying it out loud or anything uh, who's Joe Nickel uh need to sort of boost him a little bit and interestingly enough I had uh, Dr. Michael Biden the famous pathologist on my uh, committee to talk about, you know, the anatomy of Jesus as as shown on the on the shroud, and of course he he branded it a fake right off. And I also had on my team a guy named Gerald Larue, who, uh, as as we look at the uh, credits for In Search of. At the end of In Search Of, it says, we gratefully acknowledge the assistance furnished by, and it mentions two people, one of them, Gerald LaRue, professor of religion and history, University of Southern California. And, of course, he was he was a friend of Kurtz's, and he naturally ended up uh, being a skeptical biblical expert. Uh, he ended up on my research team for the shroud and uh, I hadn't remembered or knew but that's that's maybe uh, in part then how I got on the in search of oh it makes, could be it makes sense yeah because LaRue uh, is credited on several episodes usually they're biblical or Bible adjacent at any rate. That's right. Yeah, like yeah. Noah's Ark. Yes, yes. Something like that. He would show up, and he had written he had written skeptically of these things, and 
and was a was a good friend of mine for many years and uh helped me anything i ever wanted he was he was there for me so that's an interesting connection it is but what i did uh, maybe i should say something about how i tried to solve this mystery of the shroud's image absolutely now the shroud itself you know there were lots of things you could say like uh the earliest record of the shroud was a bishop's report uh in the middle of the 14th century and and he wrote to pope clement and said the artist that made it had confessed so uh this was one of those things you you suggested that there would be a lot of things that uh, might be telltale about the shroud being a fake but what was what was unusual was this so-called photographic negative image. And uh, so much so, you see, that it made sense for me to have an article then on that focus alone, even, in Popular Photography magazine. My article was titled, uh, The Turin Shroud, Fake, Fact, Photograph? (laughs) Well, you see. And... And the first thing I learned in studying that image was that it was no such thing. It was not a photographic negative. And I began to uh, invite people to, I'd say, you know, the image on the cloth, it's true, uh, doesn't look so great, but when you photograph it, the darks and lights seem to come alive, and it looks more like a real person. Yes, that's true, I said. And however, uh, it's not of the nature of a photographic negative because in the reversal, you know, when you look at the reversed image, which you can only do on a photographic plate, when you look at that, yes, it looks so much better than, than in the image on the cloth, but it has Jesus' hair and beard as white. You see, the opposite, the opposite of what you should expect if it were a photographic negative. Yes, the features looked better and all that, but it looked like a white-bearded old man. And I would occasionally make a sarcastic reference to, you know, was Jesus an albino? What? <laughs> uh, or or something like that, you know, to point that out to people. And so it, it, it wasn't, you see, uh, of the nature of a of a photograph it just was a coincidence that it shared some features and i struggled around for for a little while i had tried to make uh imprints from a human face and i naturally used my own face and what happens is you get grotesque wraparound distortions you 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 make an imprint of your face you can put pigment on it which i did and and press the cloth to your face and then 
unwrap the cloth, and of course it's it's overbroad and it looks distorted, and so forth. How do you how do you get around that? And I found that uh, again, just by trial and error, which is kind of the way um, we historical detectives do so much, is we roll up our shirt sleeves and we. And we just have a, an experiment or two. And and I could see that this was not made from the body, in my opinion, not certainly not made from the face of a real person. And that what would be necessary then, how would you remove the wraparound distortions? Well, it was pretty sim- simple to me, being an artist. Well, we just go from a full 3D sculpture to a bas-relief a low relief. And let's see what happens when we do that. And immediately, immediately, I had a shroud-like image. Nice. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I learned, uh, um, you know, some details and so forth. Uh, I, I made that image by, I would take wet cloth and actually mold it to the bas-relief, working it as it slowly dried uh, and kind of would come loose from the bas-relief. I would keep pressing down and working it with my fingers and so forth until it wanted to stay uh, in place and be as closely formed to the relief as possible. That helps make a much better, more detailed image. And then when it's dry, and this is what I showed in in the uh, popular photography article, but it's what I'm, uh, you know, showing on In Search Of. You see pictures of me there uh, with a cloth wrapped around a relief, and I'm pressing with my fingers, and there are close-ups of of me doing that. And that was the secret. And then the other secret was that 
if you were to use paint, the paint would soak into the cloth, and the shroud image was superficial. It was only on the topmost fibers of the topmost threads. How could you explain that? And again, the pro shroud people see would be uh, at every opportunity trying to sell some some mystery right some impossibility and then they would they would try to convince you that it was miraculous and i just intuited that that maybe the artist decided to use the burial spices myrrh and aloes which would have been powdered you see and that a powder well, I could just make a sort of dauber and a, and use a powder and a bas relief, and it would be just as simple as making a rubbing of a gravestone. So, does that mean that the shroud itself is probably not a miracle, but that your creation is miraculous? <laughs> yes, <laughs> something like that. Except the myrrh and the aloes. Uh, were were a mistake on my part. Oh no! Of giving well, it's 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 quite okay. I I don't mind. Um, you know, when I'm trying to solve a mystery, I don't mind uh, having having errors and things as I go along and having to adjust them. Uh, that's that's uh, that's only that's why you experiment. You see. So I was giving the forger maybe a little too much credit that if I had been the forger, I would have used as my powder, I would have used myrinellos, wouldn't I? Because they would have been in the right region. That's right. Right. This is what would have been used for Jesus' actual burial. And that would give it a touch of authenticity, you see. Um uh, why not use the burial spices? Maybe somebody would look closely in modern times and notice that and say, oh, it must be genuine. It's it's actually got burial spices on it. However, the artist was more of an artist than he was a modern pathologist, <laughs> and he had used red ochre and vermilion tempera. And... Once I knew that from Walter McCrone's microanalytical study of the shroud, they allowed they allowed him to use tape samples. Ah, uh, you put down pieces of sticky tape mm-hmm. uh, on the cloth and then rip it off, and the priests standing around were would shudder with oh horrors sounded like you were tearing the cloth and stuff, but you put those sticky tapes on microscope slides. And yes, I, I have been to McCrone's laboratory and and saw his slides and everything. I was able to, you see, increasingly to be invited to places, even to some pro shroud conferences. They would they would invite me more than once. They would invite Joe Nickel because they thought We'll just get this young upstart there, and we'll just show, you know, how wrong he is. We'll just put him in his place. And, of course, 
that's not how it worked out, and they they did quit inviting me. But uh, <laughs> so I was all set to begin making shroud-like images, and and you know eventually then I did switch over to red ochre and vermilion, and uh, I could make uh, an image that, uh, to all intents and purposes, looked looked very, very similar to something the shroud artist himself had made. We don't know his name, but we know that he he admitted when there was an investigation, he he admitted, and he may not have intended, you see, to have made a forgery. He may have just intended to make a a simulation, another shroud, you know, of something to be shown. And uh, maybe somebody misused it. It's hard to say. Uh, I, I, maybe I should mention, over over time, over history, there have been some 40 true shrouds of Jesus. Some early ones without pictures on them. But once once we got the idea of putting a picture of Jesus, that too was copied. And uh, I know you're thinking with your quick mind that at least <laughs> 39 of those 40 shrouds must be fake. Seems that likely, was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seemed likely to me. And uh, so, but I would, uh, I would drop in things like that, you know, to be entertaining whenever I, whenever I could. You, I was going to say the. Uh, I think our listeners are probably very curious about what it was like behind the scenes on a shoot for In Search Of. Uh, so uh, you you shot this in a very interesting place. Could you share that? I with, did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did. I, I, I don't remember an awful lot about the details of that because, as I say, once you've done several, you know, appearances— I mean, it might be something like once you've been on one podcast, they're eventually sort of, uh, you know, all alike. Yeah, they got a blur together. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you don't necessarily remember Blake Smith's uh, very, very funny wisecracks. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, uh, I was uh, uh, brought to New York, and since In Search Of was, um, produced by Alan Landsberg Productions. That that needs to be known. We had the use of Alan Landsberg himself had a rather large and posh apartment, as as one might imagine. And he was off somewhere doing something else. You see, very active guy producing lots of shows uh he's he later did shows like that's incredible and so forth Mm -hmm. and uh i was i was there i believe more than once in his apartment but i i know i was there for the in search of and we just used we just used his apartment you see Uh, you just set it up like you would set up any any photo shoot you put the person, you know, 
on camera and you put behind him something and and you you figure out how you're going to shoot this and and you don't necessarily get a shot of the sink and uh so that's what they did and uh, that's where we were and uh i remember one thing i remember about it was that they while i was there they put me on the phone asked me to to you know they wanted me to call someone that i knew uh, about another show because they were they were in the process of creating the the other series, um, and I'm I'm just drawing a blank on the name of that series. It might have been that's incredible. After that, but it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter really. Uh, they were working on doing one, a, a show, not for in search of. I'm pretty sure. Um, on the Amityville horror. Oh yeah, that was that was that's incredible for sure that they did that. They covered that. Yep. Okay. Yep. So I knew Barbara Cromarty who lived in the house after the Lutzes. And I had gotten to know Barbara and we had many wonderful talks about about the house and she had figured out uh that a lot of what was claimed in the book and the movie, you know, on the Amityville Horror were were not true. That, uh, for example, the uh, windows that were supposedly ripped off and and had to be repaired and so forth actually showed no such damage and had not just been repaired but still had all the old varnish in place. And and if you got up close, you could see it was uh, none of this had happened. Yeah. And the door, the door that was ripped off its hinges, no, still had the old hinges and the old varnish, and so forth. But anyway, I had called her on behalf of these Ellen Landsberg people because they wanted to go shoot that. And I, oh, I, yeah, I don't remember if it was if it was this same trip or a second trip where I was. They were using his apartment. It just, you know, it's so inconsequential at the time. Um, you you just don't remember those kind of details, or right, I don't. Right. Nothing, nothing earth shattering. And, um, but to get back to your question, you can sort of see that they fixed up a workspace for me to make one of my. I had a small bar relief, and um, I'm showing there how to how to you know mold it to the cloth and i have powder and and so forth and uh, that was uh, about all i really remember about the shoot itself uh, i did not meet leonard nimoy he was not there uh other guests were not there that's it's typical of of these shoots you travel around, they come to you or they bring you somewhere to their studio maybe, or they come to your lab and they they shoot. And then they put all the different people together and, and have someone like Leonard Nimoy do a narration. Mm-hmm. But he, he was not there uh, when I was there, and I I have a feeling that, he was scripted and 
did a bunch of things all, you know, all separate and at at some place convenient to him. Yeah, is what I think happened. That's that's what or, we we've been or kind of researching. It was a miracle. Well, <laughs> it could have been a miracle. Well, we, we've been kind of following. It looks like sometimes we can tell he's on the East Coast because of you know things that show up in the episode, and sometimes he's on the West Coast. And uh, but yeah, they do seem to be doing a lot of very economically uh, sound, uh, especially in the first season. They did a lot of things where it was clear they were shooting several episodes on the same day because his costumes weren't changing, that kind of thing. You know, we're doing a lot of deductive yeah. stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, it's not of great importance. I note that there's a picture of Father Phyllis, um in the script, and he, he and I uh, sparred over the years till his death i may have driven him to an early grave um but um there's a shot of him walking along a, a lake shore or something like yeah, that yeah he's in chicago you know, but, yeah but uh i'm sure that uh you know they went to him and that was just some place he could walk out to and they could film him walking uh you know when we when we started the show jeb uh was Really curious about In Search Of, because it's sort of the, um, one of the founding documents of, of paranormal television. Um, and we thought it would even be more paranormal themed than it is. It turns out that a lot of the episodes are relatively mundane. They're not that strange. They're, you know, science, weather, the earth is dangerous, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But did, I, did you feel like the producers uh, put on screen the essentials of what you wanted to communicate? In other words, were they honest with your interview? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think even having Joe Nickel on there, you see, um, was a concession to this guy can make an image. And, and they let me make an image. You see? They showed... They showed uh, I don't think they they really showed my image much, and I was just using a Bing Crosby bar relief for some of it, but I had other pictures and things. I, I just don't remember what all they showed, but they certainly um, seemed to me they were trying to show both sides, that they were, they were showing that this is... Uh, a mystery, this shroud, and you know, I think fair enough. Fair enough. It 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 was getting a lot of attention out there, and not necessarily for them to shoot it down or bring it, you know, boost it, but just to say, well, what's all the fuss about? In search of, and uh, so they they let the pro shroud people make their points, and they let. Certainly, this skeptic uh, makes some points, and that they got information, you see, from Gerald LaRue um, is to their credit. Yeah, I th I, we've been very pleasantly surprised at how much more effort went into 
the research side of this show than modern television or the way at least that's how it seems yeah, to I us think, yeah i think so and, and i think they they really had done some research um again gerald larue you see they've gone to him and he was a a professor of religion and history and but also something of a skeptic you see and um so they they took some things that he said and i i i guess it's he may have he may have brought the joe nickel guy uh forward i i, I just don't know how they found me i uh, eventually i was you know, on most of the shows where the Shroud, if they were going to do something with the Shroud, um, people people doing these shows would ask around, you know. Yeah. And and they would find out. Well, well, but we need a skeptic. Uh, they would. Most most of the shows want at least a token skeptic. They don't necessarily want you to totally debunk the whole thing because viewers might say well why did they put that on it's such an obvious fake but if they put uh, sort of both sides as they call it and, and um, so they gave me uh, I think they gave me a, a little bit of of time and uh, and I used it and so I was I was everywhere on the shroud and what I was ultimately I think maybe responsible for was I was holding up the skeptic side of the shroud issue speaking for science and skepticism and that needed doing and I did it and all the time my my call um, was taken up then by by more and more people, and that was, why don't we just take a little piece of cloth and carbon date it? Yeah. And and I everywhere I could, I began to to uh, talk about that, and and I I believe that uh, they have that issue. Uh, in the in search of documentary, yeah, they they, show, that, uh, it sort of it winds up with them talking about that. You know, is that possible? And I think ultimately it does happen a few years later. That's uh, right. Yeah, because the 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 problem with carbon dating was that initially they rejected it because you would have to have had a big piece of cloth as big as a handkerchief, and they didn't want to damage the shroud. Exactly. That, much. that was the at least the argument. Right. But eventually, with accelerator mass spectrometry, they were able to get down to a oh, a piece of cloth the size of maybe a large postage stamp that, and even that could be cut in, say, thirds. Yeah, it would be enough. And they they sent uh, they sent a piece of shroud cloth ultimately to three different laboratories that could do this new method of carbon dating and they also sent them some pieces of ancient cloths like cleopatra's mummy cloth uh of known date right and so um 
the end results were that the the um, carbon dating gave a, a date range of 1260 to 1390. Well, that's just, you know, the the 1350s that I mentioned as, as the date it first appeared and the date of the forger's confession and so forth. Oh, that's, that's just bracketed that. I mean, exactly. it couldn't have, been, couldn't have been more accurate, really. Yeah. Just a very, very... And and all three laboratories got the same. And it was all done double-blind. No one knew, even when they did their tests, no one knew whether they were dating a piece of Cleopatra's mummy cloth or a piece of some other cloth or a piece of the shroud. They They had no real way to tell, nor would they have even wanted to, to know. They they just were just doing these, and then the statistics were sorted out, and uh, they were accurate. All three laboratories were accurate on all the all the cloths, including the shroud. It was really wonderful. It is now the pro shroud people, of course have since tried to show all kinds of ways that could be wrong and and in error and so forth but yeah but uh, it, it becomes a little bit uh ridiculous when you've got you know 10 or 15 lines of uh disconfirmatory evidence and then you're trying to have a special pleading for each one to explain why but that doesn't count because this and you know but you know these are if it were just matters of faith then people could believe what they want. But when you want to make a testable scientific claim, I think it's appropriate to do so, you know. Yeah, and I, you know, I tried to be, uh, I tried to take my message anywhere that I could. Uh, For example, and this may strike people as a little bit odd, but I I wrote an article and sent it in to... uh, Christian Life magazine, and they didn't think to ask whether I was a skeptic or a believer. They just had my article, and I spoke respectfully, you see, of Jesus and the the crucifixion evidence and so forth as, as if I were, you know, a Christian. But that's the same way I spoke all the time i spoke in a way that you you know i i maybe if occasionally i would i would reveal that i was uh, a militant skeptic but i tried not to so much so that uh when madeline murray o'hare wanted me to um write an article on the shroud for american atheists I was not interested really in doing that because I thought, you know, I'll take hits for this. They'll they'll start saying, well, Nickel, of course, is an atheist, so naturally he's going to be against the shroud. But um, you know, she she wanted me to write that piece, and and I did, and. Uh, but but and, uh, cur- courtesy doesn't cost anything, and it often has a lot of rewards, right? <laughs> I think so, and I think uh, 
I think being disrespectful of well, you know, when I when I investigate monsters and so forth, I'm often pretty respectful of the witnesses, even though I think the witnesses, you know, got excited or something and they didn't produce very accurate descriptions because they didn't know what they were seeing. Right. And so on. And I'm I'm uh, someone who doesn't go out of his way generally to make fun of people just for being wrong, because there but for fortune go I. I've I've made mistakes and I've you know had trouble getting evidence and had to piece evidence together myself many times. Traveled traveled the world trying to find uh, these uh, cases that needed explaining, and then trying to find, and it wasn't always obvious in the first five minutes. You see, right? I would have to, as with the shroud, I would have to look further and longer and stick with it. Well, I mentioned that my co-host, Dr. Card, couldn't make it today, but he did have a final question for you. Uh, and again, this has been a big theme on the show, which is just how has paranormal television changed? So he wanted to know, what was the experience of In Search of like compared to more modern shows? Have have things changed significantly uh, or, or are they about the same or, or just in general? What 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 is your perspective on that? You know, I wish I I wish I could uh, say something that would be useful and helpful. I I don't know. You know, shows themselves. Some show series were not very uh, very good, no matter when they were made, and some are were pretty balanced. Uh, again, whether they were old or recent. So I I don't know that I'm really able. I, I, I know that my, my sense of things has always been pretty much uh, that um, belief sold better than skepticism. Yeah, that that does seem to be true. <laughs> and that that that's the case way back and that's the case today. Um there there may have been more uh, of a tendency to show both sides in the earlier days than there than there are today. Mm. But I don't I it may sound odd, but I don't watch a lot of modern uh, uh, shows anymore. I'm not doing those myself. I'm I'm uh, not backward looking, and I'm not uh, uh, in a position where I'm doing that all the time like I used to be. I used to just be uh, doing shows and speaking at places and so forth. And now I'm I'm just pretty much picking the cases I want to study and then working on them on my own well, and trying to take unsolved mysteries and solve them. Yes, and I appreciate and, your continuing to work in this field because it's, I know, always been um, 
a small field. Many, many mysteries. Very few people trying to actually solve them. What? <laughs> so. Yes, and and you know, if you just even just look at at uh, book titles, uh, you can just spot them from across the room almost. Uh, here's here's a book. Say uh, uh, the world's greatest unsolved mysteries, and you could just about bet that they're not interested in having Joe Nickel or somebody come and solve it. They like it being unsolved. Exactly. And the people buying the books want these deliciously unsolved mysteries. Ooh, I wonder what happened to Judge Crater. I wonder how they made the image on the Shroud of Turin. And you can still find books coming out recently that that hype these things even though the the evidence may may not show that it's unsolved and and if you dare to do as I'm hoping to do uh maybe do a book of solved mysteries mhm uh, maybe people are not going to be as anxious for that book but you see, I think people that uh, that are curious. I, I'm I'm I've heard it said all my life that uh, the surest sign of intelligence is a curious mind, and I believe that. And furthermore, uh, people can debate how how brilliant I am or am not. But I sure am curious. <laughs> Boy, am I curious! I know, and and yeah. I can I can prove it with my list of things that I've tried to figure out. You see, the giant Nazca drawings in Peru, the Will West case that the FBI helped me with, and many others, uh, unsolved homicides, and and uh, you name it. And uh, I've been very, very, very curious, and I just want to, um, I think that if you solve a mystery, uh, or even, you know, one might debate whether my solution is the correct one in every instance. You know, that's just my opinion, somebody might say. Okay, but I gave you a solution that I've argued and shown evidence for that's, you know, at least credible enough for me to get into a respected magazine or something, you know, so, so what I'm, what I'm trying to do is to show that, um, these unsolved mysteries, um, invite us to solve them. And that's what science is about. And if I had to conclude um, what science is, I, I think uh, science is uh, in the business of solving mysteries. I agree. I certainly agree. Um, well, I will put a link to Joe's writings and, and articles in the show notes. And I do encourage everybody to also check out his website at joenickel.com with two L's. 
And um, I know you're continuing to write even as we speak. So please, uh, you can usually find Joe's work published in Skeptical Inquirer. Um, but he does occasionally publish elsewhere. And again, there's going to be lots of stuff to read in the show notes, so please take a look at that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Joe. My pleasure. I I, uh, always enjoy being on your podcast. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. Joe Nickel about his recollections of having been on the 1970s and 80s TV show In Search Of. You can find links to Joe's many works in our show notes, and his latest book, The Science of Monsters, should be out very early in 2024. Stay tuned for more news on that. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Since 2009, people have been pouring Monster Talk into their ears to help prevent invisible stalkers, shadow people, and all sorts of metaphysical pests. If you want monsters to balk, try Monster Talk. been a Monster House presentation.